Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, but I'm also the director of the nonprofit creatingafamily.org. Today, I am looking forward to talking with Angela Tucker. She has published a new book called You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. I'm truly looking forward to talking with her. Angela is a black woman adopted from foster care to white parents. Her book, You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption, was published in April 2023. She is the subject or was the subject of Closure, a documentary that chronicles her search for her biological parents. Her mission is to center adoptees is evident in her podcast, The Adoptee Next Door, and each of the short five short films that she has produced. She was a consultant with NBC's show This Is Us. She supported the lead actor of Broadway musicals Jagged Little Pill and has over 15 years of experience working within adoption and foster care agencies and has mentored over 200 adoptees, leading her to found the Adoptee Mentoring Society. Welcome, Angela Tucker, to Creating a Family. Hello. Thank you for having me. Let me start by saying I love the book. I truly did. You did a great job of interweaving your personal story, which is interesting. I, I don't know that it's any more unique than others, but it's a, it created a personal touch to the book and you used that as the way to wind its way through the book. And honestly, it kept me wanting to keep reading and reading and reading because I, Yay. I wanted to know, okay, well, did she meet her? How did she <laughs> react? And how, so it, and, but at the same time, you also brought in the stories of many of the other adoptees that you mentored and have mentored and some of the reoccurring themes. It was just, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and I Thank truly you. recommend it to to both adopted people, but also very much so to adopted parents, as well as adopted grandparents and older siblings and uh, all uh, all people who are touched by uh, adoption. I've I Thank recommend you so it. much. I want to start by having you read your adoptee manifesto. It's at the very beginning of the book. An adoptee manifesto. We can love more than one set of parents. Relationships with our birth parents, foster parents, and our adoptive parents are not mutually exclusive. We have the right to own our original birth certificate. Curiosity about our roots is innate. We need access to our family medical history. The pre-verbal memories you have with your first family are real. Postnatal culture shock exists. It's okay to feel a mixture of gratitude and loss. We are not alone. We have each other. Thank you. And I think that's a great segue into, in the book, You Should Be Grateful, you talk about the concept of adoptee centrism, which is in essence part of that manifesto. What do you mean by adoptee centrism? Oftentimes, we in the adoption world have told stories through the perspective of adoptive parents. Adoptive parents have kind of unwittingly co opted the whole narrative, oftentimes because they have the most power. And so mm -hmm. they're speaking on behalf of perhaps their newborn who literally mm -hmm. does not have a voice yet. Yeah. But I have found that that really continues on. So when I was touring with Closure and I would say, I'm an adult adoptee, people would look at me kind of quizzically and be like, oh, wait, do you mean you're an adopted child? And I'm like, yeah. I'm an adult and I'm still <laughs> adopted. So I was recognizing how hard it is for people to think about adoption, not in terms of a newborn baby or a, a kid, but through the perspective of just adoptees as we grow. And so a lot of my book is looking at scenarios that many folks have thought about before, but just haven't thought about strictly from the perspective of the adoptee. And Obviously, given the title of the book, You Should Be Grateful, why is the spoken or unspoken, You Should Be Grateful, so hard on adopted people? It really creates this conundrum when people, you know, infer that we should just be grateful for this life that we have been given through adoption. 
it kind of silences adoptees who may want to talk about their biological family in a way that might just be curiosity, like wondering, I wonder what life would have been like if I wasn't adopted, that kind of thing. When we have that pressure to just be grateful, we are stunted around those thoughts. And I think it's really important for adoptees to be able to explore those wonderings. And in in the book, I call it the ghost kingdom. But it's hard to do if we're continually made to believe that our life is better after having been adopted. And my belief, being adopted creates a different life, not necessarily a better life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you should be grateful also denies the reality, which you get to in the adoptee manifesto, that you can feel many conflicting feelings. Exactly. That it's Yes, you could be, and you talk about this in the book, where it's very common to say you could be very thankful for your parents, grateful for your parents even. You can feel all of that at the same time, wish that you weren't adopted. Exactly. I say that often and people look at me sideways. I can say, I really love my adoptive parents. I love all the people that being adopted has brought into my life, and I wish I wasn't adopted. Right. And that we humans are amazingly capable of holding conflicting emotions. That's almost the essence of being yeah, human. It really is. Yeah, 100%. And, and and it's really clear in the book, your parents are great. They are just, I just loved when your mom wrote a letter to your birth mom. It was so beautiful. And how she was able to support you in this search, and we'll talk about search later, but in no way is this a bashing of adoption even. Um, it's, But it is accepting the reality that it's founded in loss and that how could you as a human being not feel that loss and how wrong of us to deny you that feeling. And then when I'm working with mentees who are 12, 14, 16, and they have just been told your birth mom loved you so much, she placed you for adoption, or just been told kind of a glossy, non-full truth that these mentees are, they feel deep inside, like something is wrong. What happened in order for me to have to be adopted? And they're not not being provided those details. So therefore, it really just creates more confusion. There is a way to tell all of us our story in ways that actually don't create more harm it just helps us make sense of our story. And that's what I'm loving helping individuals do. I love helping adoptive parents figure out the ways to tell their child their full story. When adoptees grow up kind of thinking that their adoptive parents don't love their birth parents or they're ashamed of what their birth parents have done or that kind of inference, many adoptees believe that that must be true about themselves too. And I think that's really harmful. And I think it can definitely be true that adoptive parents, particularly if there was some real negative things in the story, do have highly conflicted feelings. But I also think that sometimes adoptive parents, and I am an adoptive parent, so I have had the privilege of having been centered for a long time. But I think sometimes parents don't want to share the hard parts of the story because they love this child and they think it will cause pain or they may know it will cause pain. So what would you say to parents who are, if not withholding, shall we say, candy coating the story out of fear that somehow it will damage their child's sense of self-esteem and and the wonder and preciousness of this child? Oh my goodness. I mean, it's just inevitable that every adoption is going to have tricky parts about it. Sure. You know, it's true in the sense that inherent in the nature of adoption, nobody is adopted when everything is great. You know, that the families are truly functioning and everything is going honky-dory. Those children are not placed for adoption. So all adoptive stories have have a hard yes. part. But how are parents to navigate that? Yeah, I mean, and part of it, I think, is parents becoming more closely familiar with whatever the issue was that caused the child to be adopted. So for example, if a biological parent is incarcerated, that sometimes adoptive parents recoil from talking about what the crime was or even where the birth parent is living in jail. And I just, it it really saddens me because there are 
so many people incarcerated in our country and Mm -hmm. many of them have children that they love. So by painting a picture that their crime is somehow interlaced with their love or non-love of the child, that's really confusing and will think for all of us in America, create a negative understanding of humanity. You know, people can create confusion, chaos in their lives, love their children, and perhaps a child needs to be adopted to a different, more stable place. But please let us still know the full truth. They aren't just a criminal, for example. Mm -hmm. They're also someone who loves soccer and uh, loved jazz and had a wicked sense of humor. You know, all of those are equally a part of who that person was. And we, we don't want our kids to only internalize. You know, one of the things that uh, I'd like to see if you agree with this, we tell adoptive parents is that all of the adoptee's story that you know needs to be shared with them. Now, you yes. can start by sharing the, creating the, the foundation and the structure that you're going to continue as the child ages to add more age-appropriate details as you go. But by the time they're 12 or 13, they should have that information. Absolutely. And really younger because yes. you don't want to hit them with all the, the heavy stuff at 13. They got enough going on at 13. Exactly. Yes. I, I love that. I absolutely agree. I often say you shouldn't have to retract any details. So everything oh, you point. say needs to be the truth and you can add on to the truth as the child becomes older and more able to handle it, but there's never a point where you should have to take something away. Something as simple as your birth mother loved you so much, she placed you for adoption. Like if you don't know that, if you've never met birth mother, if you've never heard her say that, then that is actually not true. And you'll need to retract it later. So instead saying what you know, birth Mm -hmm. parent reached out to the agency, the agency contacted us and, you know, whatever the truth, Ruth is. So nothing where you're going to have to say, oh, actually, this is not how it went. That will create a lot of trust issues with our adoptive parents. And we definitely don't want that. Sure. And and you may know part of her story without knowing the love part because you've never met her. You may know that she was very poor. You may know that she was raising three other children as a single mom. You There may be things that you know, or she may have been struggling with substance abuse disorder. There may be things that you know that you can share that might explain, but you don't know if you don't know the whole thing, which is why open adoptions are so helpful. Yeah. I mean, the supportive aspect as well that I talk a lot about is that adoptees need to know each other. And this is one way Mm -hmm. to help minimize the the fear and the scariness of our stories. When we can meet other adoptees who also are wading through different stories, all of our stories differ, but that to me, I have seen how profound those relationships are in helping us have a a really confident sense of self-identity belonging You know, Mm -hmm. we're not the only ones in the room who have an adoption story that starts with loss, but we can be surrounded by others. It's really helpful. I can't think of anything more powerful to be able to give to your child. So you alluded to this earlier. In the book, you talk about the ghost kingdom that adoptees create around their birth family. Talk some about that, the ghost kingdom. The ghost kingdom is this concept by Betty Jean Lifton created it, but I love talking about it because it gives adoptees permission to wonder, to wonder about what life would have been like if they were adopted by a different family or stayed with their birth parents, to wonder who their birth parents might be. For myself, I thought maybe Halle Berry is my birth mom. (laughs) Maybe Magic Johnson's my birth dad because he's a basketball player. I'm a basketball player. He has a huge smile. I have a huge smile. You know, that was a ghost kingdom my parents knew Magic Johnson is not your birth dad. Halle Berry is not your birth mom. You know, they didn't know who my birth parents are, but they knew that wasn't true. And so they could say, like, no, I don't think that's your birth dad, but I could see why you would think that. Look at these similarities you have. I think in the ghost kingdom, what we're really doing is searching for our identity and for ourselves. So by having someone really kind of honor that question, it helps us to not feel so alone, that it wasn't 
a threatening thing for my parents when I wondered aloud about who my birth parents could be. For non-adopted people, I think it's really similar to the ways they might just wonder, you know, what would life have been like if I had gone to this college instead of that one? Mm -hmm. Or if I had married this ex-boyfriend instead of this guy, like that is common. There's nothing wrong with doing that. We all do it in some respects. And that's the same thing for adoptees. Mm -hmm. How could you not wonder? You know, it's a part of your life. I, I suppose some people wouldn't. I mean, there are different temperaments. Some people are just don't have that in them, but I certainly do. So <laughs> I would certainly feel that way. There's a, and I don't know how to pronounce this. Hiraith oh. is the dedication of the book. And then you also yes. talk about it. I like the term and I'm sure I mispronounced it. How do you pronounce it? And then explain what it is. <laughs> I learned how to pronounce this when I was reading my audiobook. I did not know either. This is a Welsh word. It is pronounced Hiraith. And Hiraith, okay. I had to, I had to look it up and listen on Google. I was going to say Google out. Translate. Yeah, I was going to tell you how to exactly. say it. How to say, yeah, exactly. I've done that. But it is such a beautiful word, and there isn't a direct English translation, but it it is defined as a deep yearning for a home that never was. How beautiful is that? Yeah, that is beautiful. You know, and that's it's interesting because it, it applies in some ways to adoptees, obviously. But it makes me think of for adoptive parents, I could see a scenario where not every adoptive parent this situation is different, just as every adoptee has a different story. But many of them, this adoption wasn't their plan A. So I would think adoptive parents might feel that. I think a lot of people might feel this hiraith, and I would love for people to not have guilt around that feeling, you know, just like holding the both and it is okay to yearn for a life that isn't the reality. It is okay to do that mm -hmm. for birth parents. Of course, they might yearn to have been able to raise their child. Sure. Birth parents too, group point, yes. Absolutely. So I do, I do think it is a bit of a universal, but I, I wanted to dedicate my book specifically to adoptees who have mm -hmm. felt that because that is just my, my focus. And just like the Adoptee Manifesto, essentially making statements that sometimes are obvious, but if not said and stated, it can go unrecognized and the release and relief that I see adoptees have when given permission to wonder about their early days or to wonder about what life would have been like uh -huh. or to be honest and yearn for living in their birth country or like that when they have the permission to do that it really looks like so much weight comes off their shoulders. Yeah, it takes the negative power and it just is treated as something that's just simply normal. And it's not always negative. It's not always negative, but I think the general ethos is it is truly that we don't want to hurt our adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. And the fear that we will do that by wondering is really palpable. This is where I talk about split loyalty in my book, but mm -hmm. the sense that we really don't want hurt them. And so a lot of adoptees, I know older adoptees who say, you know, I've never been curious about my birth family. I've never wanted to search. And then the week after their adoptive parents pass away, they say, hmm, I'm kind of curious about my birth parents. Maybe I'll search. That to me is proof of this concept mm -hmm. of just really wanting our adoptive parents to know that we love them. We're thankful for what they've done, perhaps. And to do that means we're kind of stifling a desire. Sure. You know, another universal you talk about in the book is the having to deal with the reality that, and this is not always the case, some people, adoption is plan A, but for many adoptees, that they weren't the plan A, they were plan B, because this wasn't their parents' first plan. How do adoptees internalize that? So tough. You know, I'm grateful that really wasn't my case. So in the parts where I'm speaking about my story, it's not a piece. But for others, mentees, they do talk about feeling like they were second choice and how that leads many of them to be kind of people pleasers. 
wanting to live up to these even unspoken expectations that their adoptive parents might have never communicated, but they feel, you know, and so that people pleasing behavior sometimes goes right on through adulthood. And I I have one adoptee in the book, her name is Nancy, who is an adult and she is top of her business. She works really hard in the tech world and is doing a great job, but she realized that a lot of her perfectionism stemmed from just not wanting to let anyone down, which came from her adoption. Mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick says, since the day I was born, I've never been anyone's first choice. And that's, I mean, just think about that for just a moment to, to our audience, to never have been anyone's first choice. That is his reality. And it doesn't mean his parents didn't love him at all. In fact, it's not about them at all. It's about him. So, yeah. Another interesting kind of universal thing that adoptees feel, I want you to read on page 19. You talk about it well in there, the page 19, the first paragraph after the indent. Yeah. The prevailing idea of adoption is tidy and neat. It's a simple recipe. A family with extra love and resources meets a child in need of both. What's not to love about this? Ostensibly, this greater opportunity is a good thing for adoptees. But being the adoptee at the center of the adoption can be tricky and may come with a hard truth that is sometimes hidden and silently acknowledged. Some adoptions are subconsciously measured by what the adoptee has the potential to do with the resources the adoptive parents give. Essentially, will they turn out well? What do I owe my parents? How do I show them my gratitude? Through success? Through obedience? Yeah. And the other thing is that we often will say, look at how well that child has done or that now adult has done. You know, but for having been adopted, this would never have happened. And so they exactly they made the best of, you know, the opportunities that they had. I would think that would put a lot of pressure, but I let me ask you. Oh, my goodness. In one story, an adoptee comes to me and the first thing they say is, don't worry, I'm not one of those messed up adoptees. I'm a really well-adjusted adoptee. And I asked her, what did you have to adjust to? Because she was saying, you know, I don't think about my adoption much. It's not a real big part of my story. I just am well-adjusted. And when I asked her what she had to adjust to, it was the first time she had thought about the adoption and what it may have done in her brain and realized that in order to be well-adjusted, she had to have had some conflict. And that was really startling for her to realize. And so that she had really been playing up this role of showing everybody around her I'm good. Nothing to see here. I am. I'm the well-adjusted adoptee. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But isn't that implicit that if somebody does question or if somebody is angry or whatever, that they're the non-well-adjusted adoptee? Exactly. The angry adoptee is what they're often referred to as. Or the term resilient, I hear a lot about, especially adoptees through foster care. And that word as well can put some pressure on adoptees to consistently be really good, to never mess up. And and that's really especially tough for adolescents because in adolescent development, that's the whole key of that time period is to try to fail, to try something else, to try on a different, you know, blue mascara, I remember was my thing when I was a teenager, <laughs> was, wanted to rebel a little bit. But you know, large and small examples of that. But that's the predominant work of a teenager is to try out new things. And when adoptees are kind of subconsciously just through societal messaging told to be grateful, there isn't a lot of space for that. So what Mm -hmm. I see is a lot of adult adoptees going through those stages after they're out of their parents' home And then they are trying on new things. And I I find that to be really sad that it's really delayed in that sense. When it's delayed, it's a little more dangerous because you have more to lose when you screw up. Yeah, you're not in that protective place of your your parents' home. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm writing all of this with the caveat that 
adoptive parents are not doing this wittingly. That's part Mm -hmm. of the whole purpose of the book is to enlighten some adoptive parents who may say things like, you know, if my kid isn't bringing this up, like, for example, an idea of people pleasing, then they probably don't struggle with it. And it's nothing to talk about. When in reality, they likely don't have the language to describe that that's what's happening. Probably, yeah, very much so. Or don't feel safe in talking about the negatives with their parents because, as you said earlier, they don't want to hurt their parents' feelings. Exactly. How do we say something like, I wish my birth mother could have kept me when our birth parents may be unsafe people? Mm -hmm. The response is really quickly going to be like, oh, gosh, you wouldn't want that. Look Mm -hmm. at what you have here. Instead, what we're trying to say is not literally... I want to be in an unsafe place, Mm -hmm. but it's, I want to know that this person who gave birth to me cares about me, loves Mm -hmm. me. Do they? Mm -hmm. Thinks about me. I want them to have been the safe place in essence. Yes. Yes. And I think a lot of my book, when I'm going back into the history of adoption industry and practices, I'm trying to talk about how much of our history has to do with why adoption has to happen. So it's not that my birth mother was poor in a vacuum, but there were a lot of things that led to her reality. And those things are also responsible for me not being able to stay with her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Most people find out about podcasts through their friends and their family. That is exactly what happens to me. That happened to me this past weekend when somebody said, I love podcasts. And both of us almost said at the same time, ooh, tell me what you're listening to. Please do us a favor and tell people what you're listening to. Tell them that you are listening to the Creating a Family podcast. That helps us and it helps our mission. Thank you. Okay, now I want to shift to talking about race, because part of this book is, well, you are a transracial adoptee, a black transracial adoptee, and part of this book is talking about race, identity, and transracial adoption. Can you read from the uh, very bottom of page 69 over the carryover paragraph to page 70? Since the founding of this nation, being Black in America has been a complex mix, I began, as the boys listened intently. A mixture of embracing one's culture and heritage, while simultaneously employing code-switching, acting white, letting microaggressions roll off us, and many other survival techniques. Looked at from this angle, perhaps being a transracial Black adoptee is the quintessential Black experience in the United States. I should have added that you were talking to a group of young teen black transracially adopted boys. Can you talk more about that, that the experience of being a black adoptee and what it requires of teens and and adults? First off, talking specifically about black boys who are raised by white parents there is a different level of need for keeping them safe in our country. And in the book, I talk a lot about how for many of us Black folks, we need other Black individuals to speak to us about some of those realities. And in this sense, I'm saying that for white parents, some of the parenting duties have to be outsourced. That can feel really uncomfortable, but there are certain aspects of racism that white parents simply cannot imbue, cannot fully understand, and therefore won't be able to have the same impact around that safety that a Black person could for another Black adoptee. So I talk about that quite a bit in the book, as well as just understanding. In this section, I was was speaking with teenage Black boys and helping them understand why they felt the need to code switch or, quote, act white or manage different microaggressions that might be hurled their way instead of just them thinking that they are always trying to figure out how to fit in. Instead, it's it's a survival technique. And W.E.B. Du Bois talks about this aspect of double consciousness, which is essentially what I was getting to. The understanding that you have to be aware of all the realities around you as a Black person in America. Mm-hmm. In your story, and I want to get to specifically how being transracially adopted impacts what you just said. And 
in your personal story of search, one of the things you said in the book that I thought was so powerful that you feared before you met your birth mom, you feared that she would view you as a racial fraud. That was so powerful. Can you talk to us a little about that? There are aspects of myself that are unique. One of those being how comfortable I am in white spaces with white people. I married a white guy. And I knew that my birth mother growing up in the deep South had not had much experience with whiteness with white people and being black and having many generations live in the South. I also knew that what she may project onto my family could be what she has witnessed in the past or felt from the past from white folks who may not have treated her well, that instead of being able to see my parents for who they are, my husband, it would be a projection. That's only natural. So I feared that by being raised in the Pacific Northwest, this kind of negated my ability to be one with her, to be part of my Southern Black roots. That didn't end up really feeling to be the case because my birth mother really is understanding of the context in which I grew up and how that differs from her context, which I'm so grateful for. Mm-hmm. And and do you think that if you have felt similar, if your birth mom was from the Pacific Northwest where you were raised, or was it also very imbued with the fact that she was raised in, in the South? Raised in the South and what all that history has done and that for many Black people in the Northwest, we are transplants. And that is not something that my birth mother was familiar with. She'd never gone outside of the South. So Mm -hmm. it was very unique for her to meet me and my whole family. But your birth father, did you, I don't think you had similar fears, because we'll talk about this, but your focus was far more on your birth mom. But did you find that him and his extended family also were more comfortable than you thought they would be? They were very accepting, but there were moments that were pretty funny. Like I had brought over a cheesecake, for example, to one of the family reunion parties. And I did not know how that was like a white person thing in their mind. And they were looking at this cheesecake, like, what is this? (laughs) You're talking cheese? You put sugar in cheese? Come on now. (laughs) What? So there were moments like that, that were actually endearing. and. For my birth father's side of the family, they really took to just get to know me more when those things happened, which was really lovely. It's it's a different experience given that my birth father did not even know I was alive, didn't know he had a daughter. So me just showing up one day, it was perhaps a bit easier where my birth mother and then by nature, her extended family, there was a lot of shame built up, 25 years of shame and secrecy around this. Mm-hmm. And So that, of course, might lead to a bit of a more difficult time breaking Mm -hmm. down some of the barriers. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You talk in the book about the term color evasiveness. I like that term. What do you mean by it? Color blindness is the the term that many of us have heard for years and years, this idea that you don't see color, that everybody's the same. I want to love my child regardless of what color they are. And Subini is a professor who has upgraded that term to color evasiveness, meaning if you can say, I don't see color, that you are actually having a willful part in choosing not to see color. It's not just happenstance. And so that active role I love talking about as well, because it no longer lets people off the hook. It's saying, oh, you're actually making a conscious choice to uphold the status quo of whiteness instead of just saying, I don't see the difference. So the, the, the prevailing thing is that there's an act of color blindness tends to be just, I just don't see it. Don't know what's, you know, my eyes work, but I just don't see color. The other one being, or I'm being facetious that I don't see color because all people are the same, I think is what that is supposed to mean. But color evasiveness has an active component to it. Yes, I love that. It is saying you are participating in the erasure of your child's history and their culture 
you aren't just ignoring and trying to say, you know, ignorance is bliss and we're all a happy melting pot. Like you're actually participating in the harm Mm -hmm. by choosing to not see the fullness of who they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let me pause here for a moment to tell you about the Jockey Being Family Foundation and their support that allows us to bring you 12 free online courses. These courses are just terrific. They're interviews with experts on topics that are directly relevant to adoptive, foster, and kinship parenting. So check it out at bit.ly slash JBF support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash JBF support. Okay, now I want to talk about the five dimensions of racial identity identified by Susan Harris O'Connor. She's a biracial person adopted by white parents, and she's specifically talking about transracial adoptees. So this is the five dimensions of racial identity for transracial adoptees. They are genetic identity, imposed identity, cognitive identity, visual identity, and feeling identity. So let's start with genetic identity. And what I'd like to do is not necessarily contrast, but try to build the dimensions of what a transracial adoptee has to do in order to create their racial identity. So let's start with genetic. Well, and and to back up a little bit, I just love how Susan Harris O'Connor broke up their identities. I did too. You hear transracial adoptees fumble through words saying like, I don't act black enough or I don't feel black. And oftentimes that can lead to people questioning their reality. Like, wait, do you not think you're a black person or, and absolutely they do. Have you not looked in a mirror? (laughs) Right. Yes. No. So this breaks it up saying transracial adoptees have a multitude of identities. And for a, a parent standpoint, what I liked about it, and I promise we are going to get back to you explaining what they are, but what I liked about it is that it was very graphic explanation of the multiple levels of identity that our kids are naturally having to grope with and deal with, oftentimes silently and on their own, in a time when they're teens, because that's when it often begins. And it just gave me such a deep understanding of the complexity. And it's a lot of work (laughs) to put this all together. Especially when you don't know you're doing it. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, the genetic identity is, is basic, just the genetics of, you know, from my biological parents, I, you know, am black for Susan Harris O'Connor, black, Native American and white. This is, you know, different than the imposed racial identity, which is what others say and impose upon you. So for this, this is where a lot of the microaggressions come in. For me, people would say, you know, you act white. You talk white. You talk white, right. The cognitive racial identity is what we think or know ourselves to be. So, you know, ideally your genetic identity and your cognitive identity would be the same, but for some adoptees, they don't know their genetic identity. They don't know the facts of their birth parents. And so they have to maybe guess. Mm -hmm. And then there's the feeling racial identity, which I really work on a lot with teens in groups that I run and at adoption camps, but this is what they feel themselves to be. So this could be, you know, that you feel white as a result of your socialization. I would say this for myself, that I being very comfortable being in white spaces, know that that is a distinctly different aspect of my identity than what my cognitive identity is or what my genetic sense is. Do you view that as a benefit or as a hindrance, that feeling comfortable in white spaces? Currently, it is it is very beneficial. I'm really grateful that I'm able to not just code switch, but have an impact and kind of be a bridge builder in many mm-hmm. senses. I wouldn't be thankful for it if I didn't know it was happening. So I'm thankful mm-hmm. to be able to articulate that this is the reality, this is why it is the reality versus 
just feeling safer in those spaces and not articulating the why, Mm -hmm. which is why I'm really grateful for like a breakdown like this. Yeah. I think the breakdown is immensely helpful. And I wanted to give an example of the visual because I I think we think in terms of what do you mean the visual? You just look in a mirror and, and you see. I just recently was listening to a podcast with Malcolm Gladwell, his revisionist history podcast, and he is biracial. And he talks about that visually, unless you know what you're looking for, he would not look like he has a black mom and a white dad. He looks more white. When listening to him speak, I was thinking in terms of these five dimensions, and I won't speak for him, but I think he he has his own unique way of having identified in these five dimensions. Yeah. It's fascinating. And so I was very appreciative that you brought it to my attention of Susan Harris O'Connor's yeah. because it makes you look at identity, racial identity quite differently right. and deeper and a more deeper level, I suppose would be the way to say it. So great. So wonderful. I think there's folks who kind of misunderstand some of my work, you know, saying that I might be anti-adoption or anti-transracial adoption. And I'm certainly not, although I wish that we could do more work on the root causes to make adoption less necessary. But I do think that it, at this point, we do need other folks to step in and raise kids at many different times. The thing that I'm asking for is for adoptees to have the space, the correct people in their lives so that they can make sense of their story. And one way is through the realization, the truth that we do have a multitude of identities and that we can look at it in these different ways. Mm -hmm. Another theme that I think many transracial adoptees have to deal with is something you call white privilege by osmosis. Or I think one of the adoptees, actually a very, very wise teenage adoptee said, I like that term. We often speak of it as an umbrella, that children who are under the umbrella of your white privilege up to a certain age. And then when they're not seen with you, they don't have that privilege. And that's the same with, uh, so talk some about white privilege by osmosis and how that is tricky for transracial adoptees. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think when transracial adoptees are in the presence of their white parents, that society makes some connections. They're like, oh, this is who they are. They Mm -hmm. are in this city, for example, that might be predominantly white because look at who's with them, those white parents. All right, now I can make sense of them. Mm -hmm. But for many adoptees, when they go off to college is the first time they're outside mm-hmm. of their parents' purview. And that privilege of people just being able to make sense of why you're here goes away. And all of a sudden, like for me, I was just a black woman in this predominantly white college institution. And people were asking, like, how did, why are you at this school? How did you land here? And for me, it made complete sense. The school looked a lot like the people I'd grown up with, it was wonderful. And then I realized like, oh, without the context of my white parents, I now need to help others make sense of who I am and why I'm here. That safety kind of dissipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfectly good sense. And and I think you're right. It's when they first start individuating, separating from us, and they're in the world on their own. I have a question. Did you receive much or have you received much flack for marrying a white man? You talk about Brian. He is such a powerful character in your book. He sounds wonderful, but he is a white man. And so you as a black woman, have you received flack? I certainly wouldn't say I received flack, but I think people have questioned, you know, if I am so outspoken about racism and the need for belonging, that it would be confusing why I would choose to marry a white guy. And it's really, truly the environment I I grew up in lent way for me to have a lot of access to white folks. I I did not have a big Black community in my early 20s. I had to build that and develop it. So I think now there are folks who are seeing my body of work and curious about that. But I wouldn't say I've received flack. In in fact, it's been more kind of beautiful 
to gain other kind of marital interracial marriages from people who love like the loving generation or the that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they'll talk about that quite a bit. So I certainly didn't receive any sort of flack. I think with my birth families, there was, they would make fun of him <laughs> a lot. He handled it beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all in, in good fun. Yeah. That's how families do is tease each other. So in a way, exactly. when, when they were teasing him, I thought, okay, now you're becoming a part of the family because if you're they treated the family. him with yeah. a lot of respect, well, at least in my family, that's not how we treat each other. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to hold your own and, and accept a lot of, of teasing and, and everything else. Well, that Do you think it is common for transracial adoptees to marry, assuming they were raised by white parents? And we should stop and point out that transracial adoption can also be brown parents adopting white children. Yes. In this case, we are talking more about white because that happens more often. So is that a common thing for transracial adoptees of color? I see it a lot, marrying yeah. folks who fit the culture that they were predominantly around. I really do see that. And then I see after the marriage happens, a lot of transracial adoptees wrestling with their identities in that decision. That somehow, going back to the racial fraud idea, that that by choosing someone outside of their race, maybe they really aren't a real Hispanic or Latinx. Maybe they aren't really a, a, you know, fully a true air quotes around the word true black person or whatever. Yeah, which is absolutely not true. And it's helpful to then realize so many folks who have no connection to adoption, you know, marry interracially, of course. Exactly. But it takes time to get to that space and to feel comfortable with ourselves, our decisions. Mm hmm. Right. And own who you are. All five elements, all five dimensions of your racial identity. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Creating a Family has an interactive training support curriculum for foster, adoptive, and kinship families. It's designed for both support groups as well as skill building type of trainings for these families. We have a library of I think we currently have 24. We will soon have 25 separate curriculum on topics that are directly relevant to help you either run a high-quality support group with almost no training, because it is a turnkey resource, or you could do the same with any type of training group that you are conducting. So please check it out at our website, creatingafamily.org. Hover over the word training and click on support group curriculum. Okay, so for the last section of this interview, I want to talk about search. That was the intertwining theme that you use in the book to introduce a lot of different concepts. And it's also, if you haven't watched the documentary Closure, I strongly encourage you to do it. Just Google it. It's available. And that was the the focus of of that documentary. So I I want to spend some time talking about it. I think there's almost a, a... Maybe I should ask, is there almost a universal fear of searching or even talking about birth families from adoptees because they don't want to hurt their adoptive parents? And conversely, the fear of some adoptive parents that they will someday be replaced once their child finds their first families, because I think those are two sides of the same coin. I see it dissipating. Good. It's happening less. And I can see this when I am mentoring different age groups. So it's funny because I will mentor an adult, maybe 20 or older, who will talk like that, who will say like, I'm afraid to search. I don't want to tell my parents. I'm curious. And then I'll mentor a 12 year old who will say like, my birth mom's coming over today. I'm tired of seeing her. Like I just saw her a couple days ago and they're just, I'd rather go play basketball. And you know, now I'm stuck having to talk to her. (laughs) They're so comfortable with their birth parents being part of the family because there has been such a shift in Mm -hmm. adoption education. Thank goodness. But even with that, there still can be a sense of wanting to make sure our adoptive parents know that you're not going to be replaced. And that can be done in so many different subliminal ways. But I definitely see that waning. It's not the same that it used to be. It makes me feel like our educational efforts And as an educational nonprofit, we certainly are glad to hear that maybe some, not that we alone are doing it, but all of us are. It's making a difference. And you know, I do think that adoptive parents 
we can intellectualize all we want and we know that that we can love more than one person and we know that our children can love both sets of grandparents. Yeah. We know all this on the intellectual side of things and when we take it to that level. The but emotional down, aspect. Yeah, you 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 love these children and you as one adoptive mom said, but whose table are they going to sit at at Thanksgiving? That's all I want to know. And it broke my heart and I I get it. It's like, I want to still have that place. And even if I'm willing to share it, but that's still, it's hard. It is so heartbreaking. One of the most healing things for me has been the way my mom and my birth mom love each other and have this relationship yeah. and want to be together. So the idea of, you know, whose Thanksgiving dinner table will they be at? For me, it's like, I love knowing my mom and birth mom would like to be at the same Thanksgiving dinner table with me, <laughs> you know, and that's part of the idea of the Sondersphere, this kind of made up word that I talk about in my book that is, in my opinion, it's the next step from openness and adoption. It's actually now talking about developing this deep, true relationship with many people in our lives, including our birth parents, that embraces the ebbs and flows that naturally come with relationships. It doesn't cut people out when things get too chaotic. It keeps people all at the mm -hmm. table together. And mm -hmm. I think another aspect of progress that has been made that has helped decrease that sense for adoptive parents of fearing that they'd be replaced is that I do know a lot of adoption agencies working really hard to help adopters understand that they might need to grieve a child they couldn't have before mm -hmm. adopting a child really making it super clear that mm -hmm. if infertility was part of their journey to choose adoption, that we need to talk through that before you adopt. Otherwise, you may unwittingly put a lot of the expectations that you had on the biological child that you wished you could have on this adoptee. In reality, they're completely different people, need different experiences from you. I think mm -hmm. that has really helped parents understand mm -hmm. their role. I totally agree with you. It also puts a responsibility on the parents to do some work before the adoption on themselves to get ready. Yeah. You had a very strong desire to meet your birth mom, but not a particularly strong desire to meet your birth father. And I think that's fairly common. Why do you think that is? I attribute it to the, the primal wound, to being in utero of this person of smelling them of that first separation. There's those aspects. And I also think the value that we put on mothering and motherhood is really <laughs> strong. We don't hear that same narrative with fathers. Mm -hmm. We often hear about fathers who aren't present and, and in different ways in the media, we see that more often than we see mother abandonment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think all of those things played into it as well as I didn't have any details about my birth dad. So I didn't have any mm -hmm. really place to wonder, but my focus really was on my birth mother throughout my entire life. I loved meeting my birth dad and his side of the family, but there is certainly a, a pull. And I tried to counter this with one of my recent documentary films where I interviewed this 85-year-old man who'd been searching for his 55-year-old daughter for 54 years. And it is a beautiful mm -hmm. story. And it was a story I felt like I needed to tell because it's not common that I hear about mm -hmm. birth dads who are doing this, but that really took my breath away talking to this man and learning. He would say things like, you know, if I had the opportunity to raise my daughter, who he desperately wished he could have, she would have gone to this school. I already found this teacher she would have had. She would have gone mm -hmm. in this sports team. Like he had thought all of these aspects through. For me, it was a newer experience to hear a biological father speaking in that way, mm -hmm. unfortunately. They're more the invisible and silent. And that says something, I think, Certainly, it says something about perhaps birth fathers, but I think it says as much about the adoption industry and professionals and, and groups like ours that need to continue to talk about 
birth fathers and, and bring them out of the shadows. So I think it's it's wonderful. And you could, would they be able to see your documentaries on your website, AngelaTucker.com? Yeah, exactly. I worked really hard to create all of my films to be open source. So you don't need to mm-hmm. pay to view it so that agencies, individuals can use them as talking points, as trainings. So yes, on my website, they can find all five of those short documentaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, AngelaTucker.com. The last question I want to ask, and feel free if you don't want to talk about this, but uh, several years ago, you appeared on Red Table Talk, a Facebook watch show with Jada Pickett-Smith and her mom and her daughter. And it was an interesting interview at the time. And I wondered how you felt about it afterwards. I watched it, not real time, but right after it came out. And then I blogged on it, but didn't go into a lot of detail. Are you comfortable talking about how, how, especially how you feel about it now and how you felt about it at the time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I signed an NDA, so you can't, you're not allowed to talk about a lot of things, which also was part of an experience that I didn't realize. And that really shook me because all of my work is about transparency, vulnerability, honesty. And so being in this Hollywood reality show really was tricky. But essentially, you know, as I was on set and had a three hour conversation with all of them, that was really deep and actually really meaningful. It was surprising to me when the episode was 20 minutes long, and it was heavily edited and cut up in different ways to make things look different than it was in reality, Mm -hmm. which very frustrating. But, you know, there were some truths that came out. I thought it was interesting recognizing the difference in generational beliefs about transracial adoption that came through when you heard Gammy, Mm -hmm. who is Jada Pinkett Smith's mom, and then Jada, and then the daughter, their outlooks on transracial adoption really gave us a glimpse into the different eras of this work. You know, Gammy being very opposed to transracial adoption, thinking it should never happen. Jada saying things like, love is love, a little bit of the colorblindness theory. And then Willow was alluding to, for her, how hard it was for her to be in a very wealthy, predominantly white place outside of LA. I thought that was kind of like... Mm -hmm very true to the experience that we're Mm -hmm. all grappling with. So that was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. That part of it, I thought as well. And I was struck by the same thing about just the, but I thought it was helpful to see the different views of transracial adoption within the black community. Yeah. And and of course, they're not a monolith either, you know, as a community. And so they have absolutely not strong. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a great example of the you should be grateful narrative when Gammy said to me something to the tone of like, why don't you just have a greater black community? Why aren't you just embedded more? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, that is fascinating because growing up in a predominantly white space, which didn't leave me an opportunity to do that, I wondered for Gammy, how I or other transracial adoptees would be expected to really get rooted in our own community if we are being raised so far from it. You know, it can't Mm -hmm. just happen. But her expectation, and I think many people's expectations of transracial adoptees, this is specifically the white privilege by osmosis thing, like after they leave the home is that we are just somehow automatically fully embraced and embedded in our own culture, (laughs) how would we possibly do that in an instant after growing Mm -hmm. up the way we have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was an interesting interview. I did not realize it was three hours and cut down to what, about 20 minutes. Yeah. So what people can't see is there was a face plant on the hand, <laughs> on, on Angela's face. <laughs> yeah, and we should know that because reality TV shows are intended to, that's how they work. And I should have thought of that and realized that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Angela Tucker, for being with us today. And I want to encourage everyone to go out and buy You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. It is both an educational read, but perhaps just important. It's, it's an interesting read. It's a fun read. It's a, I kept wanting to read to find out 
oh, what's going to happen next? Even though I'd seen the film and I kind of (laughs) knew. Yay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Angela. I truly appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed the show as much as I did. As you could tell, I truly enjoyed the book, and I have been a longtime fan of Angela Tucker, so I hope you enjoyed it as much as me. And if you did, you can thank the sponsors of this podcast, as well as the sponsors and supporters of our nonprofit, one of which is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer homestudy-only services, as well as full-service infant adoption international adoption home studies, and post-adoption support. They also have a foster-to-adopt program. You can find them online at vistadelmar.org slash adoption.